Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. Today we have a very special guest. Today we have on Katie Palmer. She's the co-director of the Theater and Asylum production, The Nobodies Who Were Everybody. She's a graduate of NYU's NYU Tisch School of the Arts with a BFA in Drama. She's the founding co-artistic director of Theater and Asylum. And Theater and Asylum joyfully pursues a rigorous, rigorously researched and ensemble-driven approach to theater making. They create performances to investigate our past, interpret our present, and imagine our future. They prize space to process, space to question, asylum. Katie has co-created all 13 of their original 13 productions, which has been presented across New York City and the East Coast, and internationally in London and mainland Europe. Katie, it's a pleasure to have you on. Uh, thanks for being here today. Thank you both so much. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, and just to give our guests a little bit of a background, so our friend Michael Rice, who I want to give a shout out to, he and I were at a play a couple of weeks ago, which Alan just mentioned, and so both he and I really liked the play, and we figured, well, we were talking, and uh, we figured, you know, why not get somebody on from the play or on the play, get them on the podcast, because we often don't focus on the arts, and it seemed like just based on the themes of the play, and obviously, you know, some of the acting too, uh, it seemed like for, it seems like arts, for the most part, is not only just underfunded, but there's a kind of misconception of its sort of utility in society. So, you know, I want to kind of get into the philosophy of all of it, but I also do want to get your background. Uh, so all right, I'm going to actually put the, my first question aside. So Katie, first, tell us a little bit about who you are, how you became interested in the arts, and then I actually want to get into the philosophy of it and what arts do mean to society and the culture at large. Yes, absolutely. Um, so I am the co-artistic director of Theater and Asylum. My co-artistic director is Paul Bedard. He and I met in college at NYU. And then right when we graduated, we kind of looked around and said, what next? And so we made this theater company and we've been going for 13 years with 13 productions. And wow. so Paul and I are the, the two-headed monster of the piece of the, the project. Uh, and then we have a third uh, person, Catherine Appleton, who's our managing director. Um, and she handles a lot of the logistics, uh, business, finance stuff. And Paul and I are the artistic leaders of the company. So we are a devised theater company. So that means that we don't exclusively work with playwrights, where a playwright writes a play in a room all by themselves and then brings it to us. We're working in a collaborative, co-conspirator way. So The Nobodies Who Were Everybody was a nine, uh, 18 to 24 month process, um, wow. which I can get into all the specifics of how we did that. But um, we were co-creating with the incredible group of actors uh, throughout the, the entire time we were working on that show. Paul and I continually editing and editing until we came up with the show that you uh, saw a few weeks ago. Mm, yeah, I love that. And so, you know, now going into the play, because for me, at least that's what I mainly want to talk about, obviously, even though we're going to get into other things. So I remember, uh, so the play was obviously set in the Great Depression. And I, you know, the theme from what I remember was essentially, you know, how important are the art, how important are the arts when, let's say a group of people, a collective, you know, collective society, when people are struggling, uh, people aren't able to make ends meet, etc. And then you obviously in the middle of all of this have a bunch of actors who aren't able to make ends meet because people aren't necessarily paying for plays at that point. Uh, and so so essentially the government was the one they were relying on the government to fund them because I mean, obviously, you know, most people, first of all, are not going to be able to do it. And then on top of that, I mean, the idea is that people need some form of entertainment. But would you say at that point when you guys were sort of conceiving of the play that it was sort of thought of um, that arts were more than just entertainment? Because, it, you know, on the one hand, you could say, well, we have, you know, a certain amount of money to rationale, uh, you know, obviously food, uh, let's say welfare checks, benefits, whatever, that's probably going to take prominence. But if we're thinking about, you know, the arts, like on the whole, Oh, yeah, the question is, what do they mean for our society at large, especially for one that's struggling? Because it can easily be debased by saying, well, it's just entertainment. Can't you just do something else? Yes. Oh, my goodness. I have so many thoughts. Um, thank you for like watching the show and listening so carefully. It's amazing to like hear uh, what we have been so excited and grappling with for almost two years uh, reflected back in that way. So thank you so much. Um, the, the place I'll actually start uh, answering your question and then you can focus me more is um, so the play itself is specifically about the Federal Theater Project. And the Federal Theater Project was alive for four years from 1935 to 1939. And as you alluded to, it was a part of the Great Depression. So there was the New Deal, and inside that, the Works Progress Administration, the WPA. And inside of that, there, uh, it, all of the WPA was entirely about putting people back to work. 
right? So the federal government looked all across the country and saw who's out of work, who needs work. And they, I'm not sure who had the really good, smart vision to say artists are also out of work. We've been in this Great Depression for up to six years at that point. Um, we need to, one of the ideas was to actually conserve their skills so people didn't leave the field um, and to, to make art for the betterment of the world um, and for the country and to continue that. So um, the Federal Theater Project was created as an extension of um, the uh, uh, Works Progress Administration. Um, and we initially got uh, fascinated and interested in the story because of the woman who was the director. Her name is Hallie Flanagan and she directed the project all four years it existed. Um, and she is just incredible and visionary and like a very unlikely hero um, and an unlikely a leader, uh, but was just the right person at the right time. And so to loop all the way back to your question, something I have taken so much inspiration from is that she, better than almost anyone I can imagine, um, has been able to link theater to democracy and to say that theater is vital for a healthy democracy. Um, the, the Greek, the, like theater as we know it in the United States, you know, you could argue started in the Greek theater um, 2,500 2, years ago. Um, and historically, theater and democracy were invented at basically the exact same time. And so since then, they have been this like intertwined discipline. Um, and so Hallie Flanagan uh, was able to say that a thriving democracy must have a thriving theater. Right. And these two are interconnected. Yeah, that that makes sense, right? Like, uh, theater is essentially, um, I mean, rather plays uh, can be sometimes commentaries on what's currently going on in society, right? And kind of um, inspire people to maybe think differently about whatever the current situation is, right? Without that creativity, I mean, it's just kind of they're kind of running on automatic, kind of, I don't know, I guess, kind of just getting influence just from. Uh, government or society some other way they're not really being stimulated to think other ways right uh, one thing I, uh, that's actually very interesting to me that i caught is that you said that uh if i'm not mistaken you said it's like a it's an 18 month uh project the the nobody's forever so yeah. what was like covid sort of like an uh inspiration to sort of work on this because uh right like nobody could perform uh during that time uh, there's this lockdown essentially uh broadway was closed too right if i'm not mistaken all these actors were out of work is that sort of like something that kind of um inspired this project absolutely yes mm. and and more even more detail than that the parallels of what actors were called on to do and and what theater was called on to do so uh out of covid right everything shut down and it was so hard because it was this double whammy of people uh couldn't go out like we couldn't be outside or sorry, let me start over. We couldn't be together in physical right. space. And yeah. that is what theater is. People gathering in a physical space together. So our art form was just eviscerated in, in an instant. Um, theater people are incredibly creative and incredibly talented and incredibly scrappy. And we made work in alleys and in parks and on Zoom, like we did whatever we could to continue to process and share and communicate through the pandemic. But one of the biggest talking points from especially our city and our state government was all about how important the arts are. New York City is an art city and an art state, right? Like there was so much um, talk uh, from politicians all about how the arts are so important to the city and to humanity and all of that. And then eventually in 2021, there was money that was given to the arts. Um, there was a huge stimulus package that was given um, from the federal government to the state and NISCA increased its budget for arts just astronomically uh, overnight. Um, and there was so much more funding. And then the city, actually came up with uh, the City Artist Corps, where they did $5,000 lottery grants to artists. Mm, um, wow. And it, you didn't even, right, like it, it was it was not even um, 
it, it was a very, very simple application and it was a lottery system. So it really was attempting to address need in a very equitable way. And that all happened in 2021. And then all of a sudden we're through the pandemic, Broadway is open and here we are and the funding has evaporated again. So the oh. fact that um, we were so important and so vital for a year uh, mm. as this recovery was happening, quote unquote, and now that we're quote unquote past the pandemic, um, our, the arts are really struggling, they're really flailing and they do not have the support. Like arts needs so much uh, government investment um, and they weren't, we weren't doing great. Theater wasn't doing super great before the pandemic. We got this huge influx of, of uh, attention and money and it, that just created a baseline. And now that has been taken away. So all that's to say, there were a lot of parallels between the, the politicians talking about the vitalness of arts and the vitalness of artists and a giant influx of money for theater and the arts and then just like the federal theater project in four years, it got taken away for us. It was even less. Wow. Yeah. And then, so, yeah, wow. So what's so interesting, I guess, or I guess even uh, terrible is, so I want to, I, I want to kind of give you a bit of a challenging question. So it's not just FYI, it's not meant to be kind of combative. Uh, I'm just wondering, cause on the other side, somebody might say, well, you know, we live in a capitalistic society, right? Mm -hmm. So if you know, you guys want funding, make better plays. Right. So, I mean, obviously I'm assuming your understanding of the arts is way more nuanced than, you know, the way kind of commerce there works. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Like, why wouldn't that be a good argument to make? Absolutely. And like, I even heard it in the way I was trying to describe it. So I think it's a great question <laughs> to come back at me with. Um, I feel like our government, that this is how governments function, they provide public goods, right? Like there are things that we agree as a society that are valuable for human beings to live together and we should pay for those things. I am not saying that's an easy uh, conversation that we ever have at any level of government, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, everywhere between defund the police to funding the military to schools getting cut, like this is not, I'm not saying this is an easy thing, but as a society, we continually over and over again, determine what is appropriate for the government money to be spent on. Right. And the arts are like, should be considered something that vital and it is continually cast aside. So right, there's a lot of things that don't exist in our capitalist society. I think education being one of the primary examples. Um, we can, right, in order to have an educated population, we have to have free public school. There's just no way around it. We right. have to have a military um, in order to have, right? It can't be privatized, that's crazy. Um, uh, obviously we could, there's a lot more argument there, but right, like these things we've we've agreed upon are for the public good. And again, we can have a very nuanced conversation about every single one of those, but the arts are continually misunderstood and left out. And while there is the commercial art, they're like, I love commercial art, it's great, um, but it's a very different model. And to your point uh, a little while ago about uh, about entertainment, right? There's a lot of like kind of going to a lower common denominator as opposed to uh, art that really tries to push and challenge people. Um, and, and so they, there's a lot of commercial art that pushes and challenges people, but there's a lot of it that blows things up on screens um, and uh, yeah, so so I think that's part of the argument of why, like, there's a lot that our society and capitalism does not support, and that is why we have a government in order to to fund that stuff. And the arts should be much more a part of that conversation. I'm with you. It definitely makes sense because I mean, you also want people to see your plays as many people as possible, so you do want to make it affordable, right? If you if you commercialize it right, in order for I guess the theater to make enough money uh, between you know paying the different uh, staff, theater crew, everybody in the production, and uh, so it's it's interesting because like uh, that's why it makes sense. Like if they were funded right, they if they could then make like maybe viewing the play more affordable to the public. Yes. Otherwise, you'd have to take like a sort of model like maybe 
I don't know, uh, charging 50 bucks a head or whatever it is. And then at the same time, doing things like um, posting ads on uh, Google or whatever, doing different podcasts, promoting the show, and then kind of taking like this other sort of um, stance to it just to get as many people as possible, you know, to go to the show to fund it. but yeah, I mean, the whole point of art, right, is is that you, I mean, it's it is for the people, right? It's, it's, if you charge fifty bucks a head, I mean, I don't know, uh, like who are you really getting to that show? It's it's definitely not everybody. It's not like. Um, and can I add to that? Please. Okay. <laughs> and then, so yeah, if you're even thinking about like, let's say influencers, right? That's an interesting topic. So when you have somebody who is an influencer, how did they get popular? I mean, oftentimes they're already well-funded, right? So people who, let's say, become popular on social media or whatever. And then, so what, why, why? Not necessarily. Uh, I know, but a lot of times, yeah. So, okay, we just, okay, we can kind of go back and forth about it. But so, okay, my point is to say that a lot of people already start out with, with wealth and a lot of times it's not known. And there's also something called the Matthew effect where the more you have, the more you get, where you have, let's say, a lot of popularity and then you become even more popular so what's so hard is getting people kind of started and i think that's kind of the point that we're making with katie so so yeah i, I understand i know there are so sorry no i was only thinking of like tiktok and stuff like that like somebody get popular on tiktok get a whole bunch of views i suppose but get advertising he also that. has time to do that People who have a lot of money, man, who have like who can shoot their shot with. TikTok I mean, if you're videos. a kid, you're not expected to work at a certain. Uh, but, point, maybe but it's not it's, kids. But it's not kids. Kids they're, usually they're all, yeah. exist. Oh, oh, oh my. Okay, oh, he's I'm sorry. I guess I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He's trying to make like a, this like really good point, <laughs> and I'm just giving this like. Weird example. And now I have to say this: you should yeah. look into like um the what are they called? So like these moms that have like uh that pretty much what is oh my god what are they called? So they have they're like mom influencers where they have these kids that they put on like YouTube and TikTok, and a lot of times you don't see behind the scenes like how they become popular, what they do, and they're like they're horrible people, man, and they like literally abuse these kids behind the scenes, and they make a ton of money off of them, whatever. But, but back to your point, yeah, <laughs> okay. So that that is a thing, right? So back to so going back to um yeah so art right so the point is my that I'm making is that it's very hard to gain popularity in the first place and oftentimes popularity begets popularity so what you have is you have like this well connected network of people and of artists who kind of it's so they rub each other's backs you know and essentially they become popular because they've already been popular and because they already know let's say the popular crowd or whatnot so I think what you guys are trying to do is you're trying to say well what we're doing is we're evening the playing field we're making it so that yeah we're making it so that the sort of talent you know, the cream of the product of the crop can kind of rise up. Right. And so the idea is, it's like, we don't want it to be uh what's that quote? It's like a rising tide lifts all ships. We don't necessarily want that because a lot of times, again, people aren't in those exact networks. So would you say that when you're talking about government funding, what we're doing is what we're saying is there are a lot of talented people out there and look, whether or not you'd like them, you know, that's, that's your call at the end of the day, but they at the very least deserve their time to shine and just to see what they can make of their lives. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, a lot of that for sure. And um, we had this line in the play or this moment in the play where two of our characters were talking just about the reality that like, there's just not enough jobs in so many fields. Yeah, the Ida character. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And that we, um, and we just lose out on that art. And we just lose out on all of these people's training and experience and thought and expertise. We just lose it as a society and like people who devote years if not decades of their lives to this thing to communicate and to share and to challenge and to move people and we just lose it and that just feels so sad and feels so um uh unnecessary um so that's definitely one part of it um just the other thing one of my thoughts about funding uh related to what you were saying was that we actually have a like living wage uh budget a living wage version of the budget of the show Mm -hmm. and um and if we were to have paid everyone a living wage for the whole thing um the tickets would have been 96 dollars um which is just so inaccessible and so ridiculous because your exact point is that theater should be or what, what you were saying alan was that theater wants to be accessible that's Right. What very much the theater we want to make, that's the kind of way we want to change the world is through accessible art, not tickets that cost $400 on Broadway. But how can we do that? And how can we actually be reaching people at a, 
a price point and a, a pl the place that they're at. Um, and for theater and asylum, it's actually incredibly important to keep tickets uh, uh, at a very low cost. So we always have a zero dollar ticket initiative where mm -hmm. people can always come to any performance for zero dollars. And then we wow. have a a tiered program beyond that because we really want to try to live and breathe this accessibility um, and this financial accessibility. Um, and then if I could actually link it back to the Federal Theater Project for a moment from the 1930s, um, one of the amazing things about how comprehensive that program was and why it's different than what we have in terms of art funding right now is it really looked holistically and it paid artists to make productions but it also subsidized tickets. So uh, in 1935 dollars, a Broadway show cost 50 cents, which mm. today is $5 and 50 cents. Wow. Uh, that's what you could see a Broadway show for um, because of, of the government subsidizing it. And it worked. One quarter of all Americans in four years saw a federal theater project show. I think wow. of that statistic all the time. We're only three people, but if there were four in this room, one of us would have seen the show that was produced. Can you imagine? Like, it's just so many people went, so many people cared. So, like, right? And it just teaches us the lesson again, again of like, it's it's so related to access. It's not even necessarily related to interest or time or capacity. There's a lot, there, there's just such limited access to these things. And that is what turns theater into something very elite. People think it's not for them. It's theater is people in a room telling stories to each other um, and asking each other to, to communicate and share deeply and, and think through a problem collectively. Um, there shouldn't be barriers to that. Yeah. yeah. And I think the beauty of theater just in general is especially when it's a, let's say, what's the word? Not nuance when it's a, a little bit more egalitarian is it's you, you see yourself in it. And I think for the most part, what people want to know is that they matter to their culture, their society. And I want to now take it back to the play. So I think what made the play so special is that you had so many different types of people. Uh, so like the Ida character, like she came from one background. Uh, I, I forgot who Addie played. I forgot the name of his character. So he came from another background. Uh, you had like this uh, uh, Hispanic dude who was like really funny he was like the comedic relief of the show uh and then he ended up like doing a show in tampa which i really appreciated because i was like oh i'm a huge bucks fan uh that was cool that was like a part of the play and yeah and so you essentially you see yourself like whoever you are you can find yourself in one of these plays and i think what probably tends to happen is when you when you're talking just about elitism is that elites don't produce plays for everybody i mean they produce plays about themselves which is like look i'm not an expert on this so i can't say exactly for sure but if it seems like like the further back into the past you go um uh, the more so the plays are about the upper classes. I mean, I don't exactly remember any ancient Greece play, ancient Greek plays about uh, poor people, you know. Maybe maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I'm just, obviously I'm not an expert in this, but I do know that elites tend to produce plays for and about themselves. And so again, if it makes you feel like, let's say, I don't know, you're kind of cut out of society or you're maybe, not necessarily ostracized, but uh, let's say inv you're invisible, you know, you're sort of pretend, it's, you're pre there's a sort of pretense that you don't exist. I can see how that can make people feel like they're not a part of it. So so I would say just art for the sake of just community or for the sake of knowing that, oh, okay, this isn't this thing that's inaccessible to me, uh, whether it does or doesn't mean something to me in particular, I think that itself is a huge victory. Yeah, that was so beautifully put. Um, and right, people, people want to feel connected and they want to feel seen and they want to feel like they matter. Uh, to to each other and to their community. Um, one of my favorite moments that I'm the most proud of is uh, the character you're referring to was played, uh, or one of the characters you're referring to was played by an amazing actor, Ari Rivera, and he uh, played a character named Marco. And that mm -hmm. character is a Puerto Rican actor, um, starts as a vaudeville star, and then he, he does a bunch of shows in the Federal Theater Project. And um, he's auditioning for a play in Tampa. And I do not speak Spanish and have a terrible Spanish accent, so I can't even recreate it. But mm -hmm. the translation of the title is really terrible. And so he has a line where he says the translation of the title, and then he says, don't know who translated that. The title should be X, Y, and Z. And the number of people, specifically Spanish speakers, who told us afterwards, I had the same thought he was having in real time. 
that's a mm. terrible title. And then uh, he, right, he corrected it um, and, and came up with a better alternative. And it was just, just like a small moment of, of recognition and of connection with that character that I thought was so cool. Um, and I will say huge credit to our amazing, amazing collaborators and actors who were willing to bring so much of themselves to, to the process, um, to these characters and uh, allowed Paul and I to continue to shape the whole piece. Um, actors had continual input throughout the entire process um, as we continued to edit and shape, um, but so many kernels and so many pieces of the heart of the show came from their individual experiences and their individual, um, what they wanted to express. And so, um, there's a little bit of form following function and, and form and content together in our show of like, we wanted to share a community of humans and we made a community of humans mm -hmm. in order to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, is there any uh, sometimes improv involved in, in the production? Um, no, not improv. Um, more we would talk a lot, people would go home and write, and then we would bring it back into rehearsal and we would rehearse it. And then we would talk through how that went. What would we want to edit? What still isn't clear? What, uh, is, what wasn't working? And then we'd go away and work on it again and bring it back. Um, the final scene of our play, we spent a whole week in rehearsal at the last half hour we would read a new version we talk about it discuss what didn't work and then we go uh paul would go home and write it uh, write a new version based on the yeah. notes and bring it back in on tuesday and we would try it again we hadn't quite got we've gotten some parts but not other parts and new parts uh that were still question marks got revealed so we went home and rewrote it and brought it back on Wednesday. Um, so it was a very iterative process, a very collaborative process, um, but not in a, a improvisational way. Mm, wow. And then, so yeah, now going back to the democracy idea. So, you know, outside of the fact that, again, people see themselves in these plays, which is wonderful. And I mean, you can see how that could contribute to, a, I would say, a democratic society. Again, people wanting to vote, people feeling like they're able to participate because they're cared for. So how else? How else can plays kind of indicate, you know, what a democracy is supposed to look like? Or better yet, how else can, how else is it that plays are important or vital to a democracy? I think that would be a better question. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I have my Hallie Flanagan quote pulled uh -huh. up. I'll read in a second, but I'll put in my own words first. Um, so how is theater uh, vital to a democracy? Just getting my brain back into it um, after my preamble. Um, uh -huh. we, it's, um, so right, theater is a participatory medium in which the audience is coming into it and has to engage. It's society's social it's a social art form um it's a narrative art form and um and it's an art form that grapples and actively wrestles with questions and we want in democ well some people want i in democracy want an audience that or want a uh a citizenry that is questioning and active and engaged and listening to each other and listening to different viewpoints um, and questioning themselves and questioning each other um, and doing it in a societal conversation with each other. And I just think theater mimics that so beautifully. Um, one of the best examples from the Federal Theater Project actually was they did something called Living Newspapers. Mm. And the Living Newspapers were like real ripped from the headlines um, topics that they then explained to the audience with a bunch of different viewpoints. So um, one was called Triple, oh, sorry, um, I forget what the one about housing was called, but uh, there was one all about housing. and. Mm. Um, the, so they basically, the show took a bunch of facts, dramatized them, and explained how housing and prices works in New York City. So it was really entertaining. Um, it, they had tried to represent a bunch of different viewpoints, but um, it, it was also very much educating the audience on that topic. So I think theater can be a very, like, um, uh, Right, that we can combine the education and the um, entertainment together in a way that almost no other art form really can do. Um, music, visual art, 
they're so beautiful and I would happily talk forever about why I think they're valuable too. But the storytelling element of theater, I think is so vital to, to what we can communicate and mm -hmm. what questions we can ask, we, we are asking of the audience. Um, and then uh, if I may, I'll just read a Please. little from Please. Hallie again. Um, it's it's uh, it was about a minute long, but the greatest achievement of these public theaters was in their creation of an audience of many millions, a waiting audience. This audience proved that the need for theater is not an emergency. Either the arts are not useful to the development of the great number of American citizens who cannot afford them, in which the government has no reason to concern itself with them, or else the arts are useful in making people better citizens, better workmen, in short, better equipped individuals, which is after all the aim of a democracy, in which case the government may well concern itself increasingly with them. The theater in our country should not be regarded as a luxury. It is a necessity because in order to make democracy work, people must increasingly participate. They can't participate unless they understand. And the theater is one of the great mediums of understanding. Wow. Yeah, I really love that. And so, you know, what I was thinking when you were saying that, and just even you or your own uh, comment before. So I was thinking with theater, it's sort of, it does something that I think literature uh, not necessarily fails to do because I don't think it can, nor does it necessarily try. Uh, and I would say the news too, but it sort of paints a, I mean, that maybe that's not fair. Maybe, no, I'm, I'm wrong. That's not fair. Uh, I, I, I almost have a feeling where you're going with this. What? Well, the, the, the cool thing about theater is that when you're actually live there, and you're watching the actors perform it the way it differs from let's say a movie right mm -hmm. like a movie is also like an experience of you know you're kind of like sitting there you're giving two hours of your time whatever and then this is being portrayed like in your consciousness right. and like you could kind of relate to things that's happening in the movie but the thing that's about it being live is something similar is happening but it's even more social yeah. than that it's yeah. like even more relatable because you're seeing these people live in the flesh acting out yeah in these sorts of ways it almost has it might arguably be the most powerful right. uh, medium yeah that. you know what i would yeah. contrast it to i can imagine uh reading a book or reading a headline about so let's i want to go back to the play so reading a book about let's say what kind of the experiences were like for people back then uh you know reading about what what it was like for somebody let's say to to be poor to feel as though you know the government doesn't care about the arts or whatnot but when you see how it dramatized in the play you actually can't help but empathize with the actors and you know the actual people who went through that and that i would say is the difference so it's one thing to read it somewhere but it's another thing to actually sort of viscerally feel it right in front of you so that's why i don't want to like criticize literature because literature does do that so that's not fair but yeah in terms of play acting and seeing it right in front of you it's such a different feeling than reading about it 100%. in a book or yeah. yeah no the the impact level is arguably i i, I really think it's probably the strongest it could possibly. Yeah, yeah you're seeing people emote right in front of you it's like it's not just like because peripherally you have this understanding when you're watching a movie oh this is just a movie. Mm -hmm. And yes, you could argue, ah, this is just a play. Sure. But it's like the degrees of separation between what a, how a movie does that to you and how a play does that to yeah. you are different. I feel like you get the closest with yeah. the play. Yeah. Oh, oh, and then, you know, yeah. the other idea I would have is in terms of let's our own biases. When you read something, it's easy to kind of explain it away and say, well, like either this is literature or whatever. Like, let's say, you know, the author has an agenda or et cetera. Right. But I think because we're such emotional creatures, you know, we kind of pick up on things. Uh, I think when we feel them, it's easier for us to accept them. So you can kind of discount things again in the media. I, I mean, I've done it. I've seen things in the media where I'm like, nah, you know, who cares? Like, where is this happening? It's happening somewhere else. You know, it's not really an important part of my life but then when you're sitting and watching it in front obviously like and the way i love the setup of your play because you're actually in the middle of it you're not just the audience you're pretty much surrounding the actors which i really love very engaging yeah you're yeah yeah it feels engaging so and the thing is you actually feel it so it's hard for you when that's so in your face it's hard for you to discount that information so when you read that passage about us being uh let's say active citizens in a democracy i think the point is that we actually feel as though these people are connected to us and we have a direct impact on their lives whereas again if you're 
you're reading a newspaper, if you're scrolling through to Twitter or whatever, because a lot of us, man, we only have so much sympathy that we want. To, I don't even want to say able that we want to give other people. So it's easy again to just discount it and say, well, this is happening somewhere else. This isn't affecting me. It's not a big deal, etc. You could even watch the play technically and say, well, you know, this happened a long time ago. But what they do, and this is another aspect of what I love, is that they kind of bring it into the forefront in terms of where we are now. And they say, well, actually, this is what we're going through now. And then you're thinking, oh, my God, like, so this does kind of in a way affect me or, or at the very least in some ways associated with me. So I love that because, again, what these plays do is it seems like it takes the truth and it sort of smacks you in the face with it and you can't run away. <laughs> I love that. Yes, 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 yes. And yeah, again, to just hear your like comments and reflections and the connections you're making is so cool. Um, and I'm just so happy to be here with you. Um, but as you're describing too, right, theater is just this incredible, like this incredible tool of empathy. And that is like the main thing theater traffics in is empathy. Um, and how to relate to characters who are like you, how to see yourself in other characters, how to relate to characters who are not like you. Um, and you are doing that to the characters, right? And then as you were describing, Leon, to uh, the way our space is set up, it's a very small, intimate space. And so we performed in the theater term is alley style, where the, the the actors are in the middle and the audiences are on either side. So it's, it's effectively a theater in the round, but um, that that's how it's set up. And so and empathetically, you are relating to the characters, you're following their journeys, you're responding, you're, you're thinking through, um, right? What would I do in that situation? What is this character choosing to do? But you're also noticing the other audience members and you're hearing their reactions and you're seeing uh, when they right when, when they get excited um we've had uh we've been lucky enough to have several audiences where people are actually talking back to the actors um and so you're like hearing their reactions um and and it just adds to the societal element of like we are here in this together figuring it out we can't control anyone else but we are all here experiencing this and thinking through it together with with that degree of empathy mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. And now to go back to the political aspect of it. So, you know, and this is just my interpretation, obviously, I mean, I could be off, but I got the sense in the, in, I don't know, again, what the kind of intention of the authors were, uh, but essentially I got the uh, the sense that when you think about it as a, so the Red Scare was obviously an issue back then, and you kind of got the sense that, so the, the politicians and uh, so I the two characters, uh, so Liat's character, Ida, and I don't remember who the other person, I think Addy's character also played the two Congress people. Yeah. So uh, fundamentally, I mean, there was this scene where uh so they were pretty much you know they were kind of buffoons right so i mean that was sort of the point and you got the sense that it wasn't really about a, a red scare or about communism it, it seemed like they were kind of intimidated by this thing that they really didn't understand so it's like on the one hand you know here's this group of people who are saying well you know we're all about equality and then this other group that feels kind of threatened by it so the sense that i got is that i didn't really believe that they actually thought that they were communists i mean there was obviously so the marco character was obviously you know a socialist in the in the play but you never really Really got the sense that it was about communism per se. You got the sense that again, this thing that they didn't understand seemed like a threat. It seemed like it could have upended them. Well, whether you know the political system, the, the whatever the kind of oligarchy, if you could call it that. And so it seemed like, if anything, that they really didn't care about who these people were, what they had to contribute, whatever. It was more like you know we're afraid, so we need to shut this down, and we need to actively, you know, confirmation bias. We need to actively look for reasons to do so. Would you say that that's kind of spot on or somewhere? In, okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, yes. Um, and and to add some just additional like names and facts to that. So uh, the House and American Activities Committee, which a lot of us know because of or like in my schooling, I mostly learned about that because of the McCarthy era and the early 1950s. But that was actually the end of that committee, uh, or that was towards the end of that committee and that um, and the Red Scare, that element of it. Um, the House Un-American Activities Committee was actually started in the 1930s. And the first thing they investigated was the Federal Theater Project. Mm. And they were you know, quote unquote, looking for communism. Uh, they were, you know, attempting to protect democracy, right? Like that's, that was their stated mission. Um, but it was entirely because they didn't understand um, and they didn't want the, the, the understanding and the empathy and the communication and the the traveling and the spreading of ideas. This is me putting a little bit of my own personal bias onto uh, uh, onto this. But um, yes, yeah, so uh, a congressman dies was the head of was the chair of that committee, 
And um, they really did go through this kind of banana sham uh, series of, of um, hearings about the Federal Theater Project. The Federal Theater Project was censored from the absolute beginning. Um, all the units were, including the Negro Theater units. Um, the government was in a constant battle with them of what they were allowed to say. They couldn't say anything anti-democratic, uh, anything uh, pro-communist. Um, and then wrapped up in that was actually a lot of racial integration. The theater in the 1930s, many, I mean, the vast majority of spaces were not racially integrated in this country. Um, and it was a stipulation of the Federal Theater Project that every theater they perform in must be racially integrated. Um, and that's just one small element of the bigger, um, racially integrated uh, platform of of communism, of the Federal Theater Project, of what was actually happening with people at that time. And I think the government was really afraid of it in the 1930s, just like they were now. So there, there was a bit of, um, they called it communism, but you articulated so beautifully what they were afraid of. And I just wanted to also add, they were also worried about different races, specifically black and white people working together. Um, wow. And they were afraid of the the unity that could come with that. Yeah, even potentially revolution. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there was also this great scene, and I, I wonder how you guys found it. So there's this great scene where uh, against the backdrop, you you guys actually played a clip from, uh, I, I think it was the 1930s, the actual program. Yeah, so they actually had like this, it was a, kind of on the big screen in the background. It wasn't a screen, it was technically uh, the, the current, but it was on the current, and there was this really great scene in the background where, uh, I don't remember the exact play, I think it was, it might have been Hamlet. It was if called Voodoo Macbeth. But oh, Macbeth. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, can you tell us about that? How did you guys actually get the clip, and why did you decide to use it? Yeah. So, even though there was film at the time, basically nothing is um, visually documented or movie documented from the Federal Theater Project. We have scripts, we have photos, um, but we really don't have recordings. There is a single recording, as far as we understand, of a single play. The play was called Voodoo Macbeth. Um, it is an adaptation of Shakespeare's Macbeth. They set it on Haiti. Um, and it was up at the Negro Theater Unit in Harlem. It employed 150 actors. Um, it ran for months and months. It toured all around the country. It was this huge success very early for the Federal Theater Project. Um, and so we the, the clip we have is a little bit of what was effectively a commercial that the federal mm -hmm. government put together saying, look at this great project we poured a bunch of money into look at the beautiful work and the art and all the people who are employed because of it um so we show in in our show we uh play the the very end the finale of that show to try to give people a sense of what it was really like to see mm -hmm. yeah super amazing and then so what came of the program then what happened to it you mean the federal theater project yep it evaporated it ended mm -hmm. It just shut down. Um, oh my gosh, this is honestly, this is my favorite story. So if you'll give me, if you'll indulge nope. me for one minute. Um, sure. so, right, our, our federal government is funded July through June. So on June 30th, what happened, uh, June 30th, 1939, um, the federal government just canceled funding for the program and it just stopped funding it. So all of a sudden, 15,000 people, 15,000 15, people were just out of work in a day. All of the productions, all of the costumes, they were building this incredible like theater complex um, on Treasure Island, which is just outside of San Francisco. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, there was so much investment. They were really just getting going. Uh, mm -hmm. There were already 800 productions in four years. Like there, there was so much momentum. There was so much happening. And the government just like literally wrote a zero in the budget line. Mm -hmm. And it stopped on July 1st. That was the end. Um, but my favorite story is there's a there's a, a congressman who wrote to Hallie Flanagan like mid-July, um, a few weeks later, and was like, hey, I have this like nephew who's a theater person. Wouldn't it be great for them to get involved in the Federal Theater Project? Where could you possibly give them a job? And mm -hmm. she wrote back saying, you just defunded my program. You defunded the Federal Theater Project. I can't give anyone a job. There's no jobs anymore. This doesn't exist. And just the disconnect that I 
politicians in the 1930s have. I think politicians and human beings have now of like, wait, this, this big, scary boogeyman idea that I was fighting actually benefited all of these people. And on the individual level was this great, beautiful, um, complicated, but incredibly valuable thing. And just the the disconnect between that of like, I voted to defund a program and I didn't even know I was defunding that because I thought I could get my nephew a job and the nepotism of obviously the story right. is ridiculous too. But the, um, just the, the disconnect between this big, scary, communist, racially integrated government program and what it actually meant to the people on the ground and who was actually benefiting from it. And that disconnect, I think, is something we have certainly not solved um, in the, the uh, 80 years since. I have a, a related question. This might be silly. I'm not sure if this impacts you, uh, but I, I'll ask. Uh, so the current uh, writer strike that's going on. That's right a great now, question. I know that... what's coming. I love this. Go for <laughs> it. Yeah. Does that does that impact you at all, or anyone maybe you you work with? And because it's it's kind of relevant. Yes, right? it 100 yeah. is. Yes, yeah, it it is. It does not impact us directly because. Uh, Actors and stage managers are governed by the equity, the actors equity uh, union, which is not currently on strike um, because it's wow. the writers and the SAG, uh, SAG, which are the screen actors. So, um, so we can still produce theater. <laughs> um, awesome. We can still still make that. Um, that being said, of course, there's a lot of solidarity there. And then one of the questions we're curious about is like is there a tipping point and like where are the kind of the ripples of this sort of conversation that's happening and or is there enough groundswell across disciplines across fields across industries to actually potentially get bigger changes made mm -hmm. um, and because that was something that was happening in the 30s right we we have a mm -hmm. line say a little flippantly in the show of like they're afraid that if they don't give us act, uh, rabble rousing actors something to do we'll all turn red and revolt and want communism um and there was so much of a groundswell of so many unions working together working against each other but all fighting for similar things in the 1930s and if the government did didn't do something they're like who knows what sort of kind of revolution people might have pushed for in this country. Mm. Um, and so that's actually something that I'm curious about with the current strikes. I know um, someone uh, that I know was picketing in front of um, Netflix a week or two ago, and they said that they had uh, airline workers, uh, specifically the, um, the stewardesses. What are they called? Air flight attendants the flight attendants um, were also there on the picket line. So like, is there a solidarity across workers or are we going to stay isolated and segmented um, and not have it roll into a bigger movement? So that's just a personal wondering about that. And like, but like artists are often on forefronts of things and ideas, right? We are often the people pushing envelopes and pushing questions and, and, and putting ourselves out there. Um, so yeah. And, and of course, I completely stand by the strikers um, and the workers and and them getting the, the deals that they deserve. Definitely hope there are some positive ripple effects as far as that goes. I, I see what you mean. There is a lot of there is potential for that. Right. Um, as far as uh, the theater in asylum, I wanted to ask you uh, what's what's next for you guys, actually? That is such a good question. Um that's a great question. It actually leads me to say the one additional thing that I've been thinking about all podcasts that I hadn't gotten to say, which is that I think another reason that theater is so valuable is the collective imagination element of it. The mm. only way our world is going to get better is if we believe and hope and imagine and then put the work into making it. I am not in any way saying hope is enough, but hope is an element for us to keep going and to keep working and keep trying to make a more equitable, more just um, society. 
And so I think theater does that kind of more than almost any other medium in two ways, the collectiveness of we're all in this room together thinking through these ideas and imagining together. And then also that like, that's what plays offer, right? Plays offer questions. They offer ideas that then we go and we grapple with and we, we, we wrestle with um, as individuals, as communities, and hopefully as societies. So um, I really think collective imagination is so important in the world um, and, and, and theater is uniquely situated to do that. That being said, the next thing that we are interested in doing is um, something called the end of the world cabaret. And the idea is um, the world's pretty, like, right? I mean, I'm sure you could throw a dart at any moment in history, but this is a pretty tough time um, mm -hmm. with the climate change and the election in 2024 um, and the, the various threats to our democracy in not a uh, hypothetical way. Um, uh, there's just so much happening. And so it is, the, the goal is to create a collective brainstorming night that a bunch of different artists are contributing to that are able to offer hope, empathy, collective imagination of just kind of what to do next. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's, that's how we hope to use our art next is to inspire, uh, to empathize, to have moments of, of um, feeling things and the impact, and then to also be inspired to, to keep going and to be fighting the good fight. <laughs> By the way, so you know, we in the beginning we talked about so just for our audience now, uh, we talked about how we can link this to potentially philosophy. Oh, uh, you've literally just described philosophy. I mean, that's it. So it's philosophy in play form. If the ideas yeah. we present in yeah. conflicting ideas, uh, let's say conflicting perspectives, and then you know we try to kind of inter integrate them together, sort of dialectically. I mean, this is it, man. So this is philosophy yeah. again in sort of in live action form, and I love that because now what you're thinking is, uh, and I would argue, I mean, there's got to be. Oh my God, I wish I were better versed in this. I mean, there's got to be some in terms of ancient greece there's got to be some plays where you have like people i know like we have now like uh there was a uh, freud's last session i don't know if you guys like know about it or saw it oh, okay so yeah freud's last session the idea was uh it was a uh, c.s lewis and sigmund freud obviously and so they kind of went back and forth on ideas and again it was a play right and so i i never saw the play i read the book the question of god and so what's so interesting about that is you have these two conflicting worldviews and oftentimes i mean they kind of hate each other right you have the atheists and the christians on the other end but then what they do is, I mean, it's not that they sort of integrate it. I, that's a kind of idealistic thinking in that respect. But what they do is at least they get a further understanding of each other's perspectives. You know, like you and I have oftentimes about like brave, talked about uh, braver angels and listen different like different political views and stuff. Okay. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So what I love about that is that that's actually like active philosophy. That's what you hope what good philosophy would be. And so when you see that uh, like on stage, and you know, a lot of times I think people think that artists have like some sort of or playwrights have an agenda, but oftentimes it's not exactly that they're fostering empathy and they're getting you they will present the different side they might not agree with it but i think the kind of misconception of it is that it's uh propaganda in some ways so uh yeah so katie how would you so if somebody were to challenge you and say well aren't plays just like a, a, an arm of propaganda or a propaganda arm right isn't it just a way for us to for people to kind of instill certain ideas into people can't we just learn these things or form our own opinions on our own what would you say to them uh, I would say that that's only a part of what theater does. And I think we should be looking and striving and working towards a theater that is bigger and more holistic than that. And back to the point, I think you were like, before you, before you challenged your own idea, I thought you were making such a beautiful point about clashing ideas together. I think that is what is most interesting about theater and storytelling in general, is each character has its own point of view um, and they're representing ideas that they're grappling with um, in personal ways and political ways. And they get smashed together in this incubator of 90 minutes with no intermission. And we are there with them as they get smashed together. Um, and right, sometimes they break. Sometimes they get integrated. Sometimes they bounce off of each other. Um, and you don't know how, so th those are the characters. And you don't know how any of that is affecting each individual person in the audience and what ripples and changes that will make. So I think to, to think of theater and storytelling um, as, a, as a didactic, you have to believe this is not engaging with the full range of what, theater really can do and really can be.
Right. And now even to challenge my perspective even further, I want to actually go back to the play. Uh, so what was great is that you did have these two different perspectives where the Marco character is pretty socialistic and the other ones are kind of like on the fence about it, thinking, oh, we shouldn't really rock the boat. I mean, these are really difficult times. We should be kind of grateful for what we get, et cetera. And I'm so I don't want I, I don't want to exactly say what happened. So, Katie, you can correct me. I don't remember the exact details, but I do remember he was supporting a particular I don't remember the name, the particular political candidate where they were like, no, we can't support him. Like he's an outright communist and then he's also not going to win. So this is not only just a waste of time, but it might make us, uh, it might ruin our reputations. And I think oftentimes, I mean, all of us kind of grapple with this to whatever extent. I would argue that, so I, Katie, I don't know exactly what your politics are. I'm assuming you're a liberal. I don't know to what degree, but I know for during the 2016 election, all of us grappled with Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton. So you had the one side that said, okay, well, we agree with Bernie's politics, but then the other side, by the way, I wavered between the two. Uh, so then the other side said, yeah, but Bernie's never going to win. So what's the point of doing this? Like, not only are you wasting a vote. But on top of that, you're pretty much you're, you're kind of making her look bad because I mean, Bernie, it wasn't direct attacks, but we attacked Hillary to an extent. Uh, so they're like, why are you doing this? You know, because we have to look at the bigger picture. And when you're thinking about going again to the concept of propaganda, why this play is an indicator that playwrights aren't propagandists is that essentially you did have these conflicting views and you had one side of the coin or, you know, one sort of group of people who said something along the lines of like, guys, we have to kind of accept reality and work within it. And then you had the more idealistic side that said, like, you don't understand. You, you're the ones who are actually wasting your time because if you do vote for this other candidate, they were actually fucked anyway. You're better off joining the revolution. And I think that's kind of where a lot of us were in that Bernie Hillary kind of debate camp, whatever war, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, yeah, it's such a great parallel and such a great tie-in to all of this. Um, and my mind's going so fast. I'm trying to like get back to the, the point I was going to make about that because I think it's really smart. Um, but right, like there's no easy answer. And I think, right, sometimes I think theater might, people might get a little frustrated at theater because we're not presenting like, well, here is the simple solution. Um, and and because life doesn't work that way. And I think it, what you just did too is make such a fantastic real world tie to politics. But theater is really related to that of, um, uh, or going all the way back to like theater is necessary for democracy, democracy is necessary for a theater because we have to make our own decisions, right? Like each person has to walk into that ballot booth and and make their own decision um, with the, hopefully with research and with the power of their own conviction and, and the thought process. And so, right, you can hear all these arguments, right? You go to a play and you hear about why you should vote for one person or why you should vote for another person or what the pros and cons are for revolution or communism or whatever. And then the onus is on the person to make their own decision. Mm -hmm. um, and I think theater tries to inspire and challenge and complicate. That's especially the theater, theater and asylum is trying to do. And then each person has to go back out into the world and live according to how they want to live. And we hope that is an active, intentional choice on their part. Right. And you could both see this on the political and the personal level, because in the play also, there was a dispute with Ida, and I don't remember the other character's name, uh, so that she was essentially moving out, uh, so, and she didn't know it for a while, and then Marco and that character were getting together, and you could kind of see both sides, you know, and I think, again, we talk about perspective taking, you can see both sides, and you're thinking, oh my god, okay, yes, obviously this person now wants to live with her partner, but then what are you going to do with the friend? But, oh, okay, well, she found another place for the friend, but the friend doesn't necessarily feel comfortable in that place. Yeah, so again, just like with politics, man. I mean, it's kind of hard because I think, again, going back to Hillary and Bernie, a lot and why I wavered back and forth because it was hard to make a decision. You're on the one hand thinking, okay, yes, you know, you're probably right. Like Hillary isn't going to get much done because I mean, she's a kind of mainstream mainline Democrat. But on the other hand, it's like, okay, but Bernie can't really win. And I like how in your play that you can see that again, both societally, politically, and also personally, that a lot of the decisions that we make, man, they are so fucking complicated. Yeah. And it's hard to be reminded of that sometimes. Sometimes it's easier to just like watch something that's um, simple, but that's, that's not where theater and democracy really overlap. And that's not where the, the change and the inspiration will really come from. But yeah, yep. really, yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. You're welcome. And, and something I'm, I'm wondering actually. Um, so what you know we probably we might actually end up when people when this comes out uh, we might have aspiring theater directors maybe listening right uh what advice would you maybe give to someone who's who's an aspiring theater director who's very passionate about bringing a story onto the stage and, and actually creating a production out of it uh especially about a story that maybe 
uh, might might have been overlooked. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my first idea would be to find your people, to find mm -hmm. the people that you want to work with and tell the story with. That's right. Like um, in theater, it's so about the audience, but it's also we are we as theater makers are given such this extraordinary gift to work together as we make it um so who we work with is just is is a huge part of what feeds us um and feeds the work itself so very much find your people um there are there are small grants you can apply to to um through up art new york or the borough grants um that we can hopefully function as seed money to get started um, but yeah, I think what I have been so proud of for theater, we've been around for 13 years. We've gone through a couple different iterations, always with me, Paul and Catherine at the helm, but we continue as we grow up, as we discover the artists we are and the artists we want to be and the mm -hmm. type of company we want to be. We continue to, to work really hard to come up with our own intentions and our own goals and our own ideals and to work to achieving them. And I think that's part of why we're so proud of the Nobody's Who Are Everybody, because it was a two-year process where we were constantly growing and expanding and pushing ourselves and, and opening up to, to new challenges and to new people. So I think all of that to say, that's why I say, find your people, because they are the ones who, um, who, who offer so much in the creation process. And to try to create your art in the most intentional and uh, equitable way. Mm, I love that. And so one of the last things before we go, I have to comment on this. So I, I told you where I went to the play with our friend, Mike Rice. So it was so funny. There's a line in the play where uh, the person says something like, oh, Eric Adams only cares about seeing his face in the media. And it was so funny because me and Mike were dying during it. So I don't know if you know, Eric is actually a friend of the podcast. He's been on the show before. I, yes. I know he's been on yeah. it. Yeah. So we were dying. We both looked at each other. And we're like, wow. <laughs> so that was really funny. Uh, so, uh, you know, in terms of uh, Eric, and I guess so, so this is going to be my final question. What would you want to sort of, uh, in I'm just going to focus on this is because where we live, uh, what would you want, you know, the kind of establishment or the administration of the New York City, you know, yeah, the New York City government, what would you want them to know about uh, kind of like what your campaign is, what you feel is important? What would you want them to change? Yeah, just that like the arts makes the city livable in so many ways as humans, as like as for, for children with arts education, like they just, and all arts, right? All performing arts, the people on the subways, the people um, on in parks, right? Like arts just make the city more livable and time and time again, we have all of this research that shows that there's alternative ways we could be interacting with each other and we could be um, uh, solving problems. And I would love, for the current administration and our city council to, to have some more collective imagination and to think about different ways to solve our problems than the one force-based way that uh, has kind of perpetuated for, for several decades. Um, there's, we can, we owe it to ourselves to be more creative and to be more um, uh, humanistic, more human-minded. And, and I think the arts are a big part of that, but I think the arts are a part of a much bigger uh, uh, reimagining that we can do. And if you come to the theater, maybe you'll collectively imagine with us of what the alternatives and possibilities are. Um, but yeah, and I will also just say, we had this statistic in our show, but in today's dollars, the federal theater project employing 15,000 people in across the entire country, cost $600 million in today's dollars for one year. The NYPD budget is $6 billion. The, um, uh, the uh, New York State is uh, paying for a renovation, a new stadium for the Buffalo Bills, um, the football team, and just the tax incentives alone are $850 million. Wow, wow. The idea that, like, there's money, right? money is not the issue. There's a lot of money. Um, it is prioritizing and it is redistribution and it is um, uh, understanding what 
what we actually get for this money and the impact it can have and where that money could go. Um, so yeah, I would love to ask various administrations and politicians to really think through what is possible and what we could be doing with the incredible wealth and resources that we as a, a city and state are lucky to have. Yeah, and right. And like I said before, of the bias of the Mac, uh, the Matthew effect. I mean, this is really it. The NFL, as much as I love it, does not need federal funding. I mean, it's absurd to think that their tickets, I mean, you could go to a football game for what, maybe $300 for the nosebleed seats. They don't need federal funding. I mean, it, or even you know, city funding. So uh, state funding, I'm sorry. So it doesn't really even make sense that it's going to, again, the Matthew effect, man, what's popular becomes more popular. It's so stupid. Uh, okay. So Alan, final questions for Katie before we wrap up. Yes. Uh, Katie, if we wanted to follow you, uh, follow your work, and of course, uh, follow um, uh, future projects. Where can we do that? Yes. Um, so everything is Theater and Asylum on uh, social media. So Instagram is by far the best place. Um, you can't follow me. I don't have any sort of personal um, uh, handles or anything like that. But our website is theaterinasylum.com. That's theater E-R. Um, and then it's the same theater in asylum on Instagram. We also have Facebook, but Instagram's by far the best. Of, uh, Excellent. We post. Katie, thank you so much for coming this on. Was this awesome. was great. This was yeah. great. Um, no, thank you both so much. Um, yeah, it was a total honor and privilege. And to just to get to talk to people about these ideas, right? And to challenge each other and to like, this, this is it. This is um, one of the coolest parts. So it was a total honor. Um, so thank you for your respect and for your listening um, and for all of your awesome thoughts and uh, contributions to, to the ideas. Absolutely. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. Have a good one. Thank you. All right. So everyone, if you'd love to follow us, you could follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram. On, tw on Twitter, we're at Seize underscore podcast. Like, subscribe, hit, hit the, the bell, bell on, on YouTube. YouTube. And again, thank you so much for watching and see you next time.